This is All In. I'm Matt Pelser. 80% of the world's RVs are made in Elkhart County in northern Indiana. It's a community built on the business of fun. But while fun is great, it's the first thing to go when the economy turns south. And oftentimes, sales of RVs will slow down long before the markets do. So how's the industry doing? That's what we hope to find out today. And we want to hear from you, whether you work in the industry or just thinking about buying. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at All In Indiana, and we'll get to your questions and comments, and we'll get them in front of our panel. Joining me now is Indiana Public Broadcasting Samantha Horton. She's been covering the trends of the RV industry and what we can learn from them. Hi, Sam. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. When I think of RVs, I think camping and road trips and summer uh, and the state of the greater economy is not really my first association with recreational vehicles. What's the link here? Yeah. So it's really comes down to discretionary income. So the thoughts of this is more of a luxury type purchase. It's not something that's an everyday need. Like you think of groceries and stuff that are much more, you need those every day where this is a little more, oh, I have some extra cash. Why not spend it on a recreational vehicle? It's a big, big purchase. It's yes. not like, you know, going and buying a, a, a movie or seeing a movie or something like that. It's a big decision. What's this year been like for the RV industry? So, yeah. So um, reports, some of recently would be like wholesale shipments are, have been down about 20% year to date. So there's been a decrease in purchases of RVs and Based off of talking with people, too, there's maybe been a little bit of a decrease in trade-ins, which is sometimes what the industry relies on to get people will trade in for a newer, better model. And then that RV is available for someone who maybe wants to upgrade a little bit more. And it's kind of a trickle down to kind of get people maybe these more affordable options out there for people. What then are some of the factors we can attribute to recent slowdowns in sales? Well, it's huge market uncertainty. That's really the big um, with with all the conversations happening on tariffs and just this also concerns about a recession upcoming. When people hear that immediately, consumers don't necessarily run out the door to buy more stuff. There's kind of a pause of do I how do I need to be financially prepared for if a recession hits? They've got to be other perspectives there uh, out there on this topic as well. People in the industry may be trying to be more optimistic about it or looking at it a different way. What have you seen in that regard? So there's been a big conversation about just the um, inventory being so high that right now it's been clearing out inventory, but that's been going on for a while. So that's where there's kind of some concerns and questions about really the next few months, kind of seeing what happens to really determine, is it really an inventory issue or is it more of a consumers are just not spending that? And is it mean, does it, is it an indicator that a recession's coming up? Why, why is the inventory so high? I mean, they've been having several years of success since the 2008, the Great Recession, RV industry took a major tank, took a major hit with that. And but since you've just been seeing these years of major success for the RV industry in the last two years have just been really a big boom for RV businesses in northern Indiana and wherever else they're located. And so this year doesn't look like it's going to be as great. But the conversation also has been it's still going to be in the top five years for them. So it, that's where there's kind of this question of what exactly is happening. What, what Obviously, Elkhart County is huge. What kind of presence does the RV industry have in Indiana? I mean, I guess when we're talking about that, we're talking about Elkhart County. Yeah, so Elkhart has been, quote unquote, labeled as the RV capital of the world. Um, that's where a majority of RVs are produced. And there's a lot of companies there that aren't just necessarily the RV manufacturers, but a lot of companies that provide parts and pieces to the RVs. People who transport the RVs out of that community to retailer lots that are then around the state and the country. So 
it's I mean, there's RV and retailers around the state that you can find here and there. But when you're talking about a community that really has a lot invested in this industry, it's going to be Elkhart. Uh, have we seen layoffs right now or is it just something that we see maybe coming in the future? So I recently talked to a guy who actually was laid off uh, the spring and uh, he's kind of just been watching, engaging and holding on for hopefully he's hoping to be able to get back into an industry. But it's kind of a wait and see right now to see if the industry is able to make a turnaround or if we continue to see the same pattern that we've been seeing for a little while. What, what, what has he said and what have you heard from the communities like Elkhart that have a lot of stake in this? Um, I think right now it's the big thing he's watching for actually is, go, and this is a little forward looking, is late September is Elkhart's RV open house. And that's when a lot of the new models will be coming out and or be presented for retailers to decide, do I want to buy some of those to have on my lot to sell? And when those orders start coming in, I think that's going to be the indicator for him if he if there might be a future for him in that industry, if he needs to start looking maybe somewhere else for uh, for his employment. And this particular person you've talked to, has has he worked in the industry for a while? Yes. So he's not new. He has friends in the industry and it's, it expands not just to RVs, but there's some boating production up there as well. So it's another luxury item that involves discretionary income. So it's a lot of um, – you also hear about some – rollbacks in production amount production time. So work days might be cut shorter or days for production might be down from a day or two or down from four days maybe to two or three in some cases. The RV industry has had a really strong presence in Elkhart County for decades, a long, long time. And this is so fluctuations in the economy has got to be something that they're accustomed to, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's when I actually was able to be up in Keystone at Keystone RV Companies, which they celebrated their one millionth RV a couple of weeks ago, which is a milestone for them. And they were very excited. Wow. And so when I talked with them a little bit about concerns with tariffs and with this, this um, discussion about people maybe not spending as much money and RVs, you know, what's that concern? And it was very much a this is a, an industry because it relies on a discretionary income that has to know how to adjust based off of consumer demands and interest in the industry. So they're very much aware and it's a very much it's some proactiveness and also some reactive to depending on what type of problem it is. Let's talk about other industries that are impacted by changes in RV sales. Uh, obviously, I think of dealerships and things like that. Are there any others? So you think of, uh, like I mentioned earlier, up in that area, there's a lot of companies that supply parts and pieces to these RVs. So it might be woodworking. It might be some of these other little pieces. Because what's fascinating about the RV industry is that you think of like auto – you think if you've ever been on to see like an automotive plant, there's a lot of – it's a lot of like it's on this kind of line that just kind of – there's some robots working on it. There's some people working on it, but it's very – there's a lot of automation involved where mm -hmm. when we toured at Keystone, one of their RV plants, it was a lot of hands-on. It's done a lot by hand still. I, don't, I didn't see really any automation really as much. It was a lot of people just in the RV doing the work and then – pushing they actually were hand pushing the rv to the next slot to work on it do do they sort of tout that in their marketing like handmade or i mean you may you may know that you may not i mean it's something they take pride in i think because you have humans that are actually putting in the work and it's such detail rvs are not just a car is a little more of a basic type design when you think of rvs there's so many little details when we talk about the woodwork and some of these other little bits and pieces that go into them that the human having that human working on it actually really 
is what they see as an advantage. Let's talk about tariffs and, and, and the trade war. How do you can, can you break down the domino effect of what happens <laughs> when a tariff is announced from Washington and how it ultimately affects the sticker price? Yeah, so <laughs> tariffs are very – it's a complicated thing. It's, it also goes down to even the concerns of tariffs. That's what we've seen right now with the markets. Um, it talks about when are we talking – when is the U.S. talking with China? When are they not talking with China? How is, our, how is the you know, administration feeling – like tweeting even about China? And you see this, the market react to that and that, that makes it such a volatile market that that's where some of these concerns of – prices um, being going up or something on certain products that that might be going into the RVs. But it's that's where the RV industry has to kind of be planning on how do we adapt to some of that market volatility. As we kind of touched on in the aftermath of the Great Recession, the RV industry had eight years of consecutive Mm -hmm. growth, which is really impressive. What was the what was that period of expansion like for the industry? Such as such as I mean, did it did it change things a lot? Did new plants pop up? Yeah, I mean, you see increased production. It's one of those things when there's more demand, you're going to see more investment. And I know there were some plants that, like, there was one we drove by that talking with the person I was talking with that it actually had been a plant that was shut down at one point and then was restarted once success started coming back into the industry. And now it's kind of one of those things where when we drove by, there wasn't a lot of RVs in the lot. So there's a concern, you know. Clearing the inventory, yes, but then the concern is, okay, in a few more months, if those lots look the same, then does that mean there's another indicator happening? What I've heard about and perhaps what uh, I'll, what we'll hear later um, from someone working on the ground is that uh, that manufacturers sort of overproduced. And uh, now there's a lot on the lots and not a lot at the manufacturers. You've seen this as well? Yeah. So when I drove around with the person who was actually laid off recently um, or in the spring, he was pointing out, I guess, like a few weeks ago when he drove by, the lots were pretty full. And when we went by a couple of weeks later, they were getting pretty empty. And so there's a huge question of, you know, what there's that can mean several things. And that's where it's kind of one of those, like I said, we're September when these new models come out and you start seeing the orders for those, if there's enough orders on those, I think that when you start looking at the lots then in those later months then, if they're still pretty empty, I think that's going to be where people are going to be like, okay, this is indicating there's a bigger problem here than just inventory being cleared out. So what now? What do we keep our eyes open for as this discussion around the economy, the economy continues? Employment rates, sales in specific industries, what, what else should we look to as benchmarks? For, so, I mean, discretionary income, obviously, is the big one. I mean, you're going to look at, obviously, watching what happens with negotiations with China, with trade on that front, because that's obviously a key one. Even the United States-Canada-Mexico agreement still hasn't been ratified fully. So that's another thing that is leaving that door open in that trade with when it comes to our neighboring countries. So there's a lot of those things I think that'd be watch, to be watching for. But when it comes to um, Elkhart and RVs, it's kind of going to be what, like I mentioned, that those orders for these new models, and then also with if there are continued layoffs or reduced production hours. And in our last thirty seconds, what is uh, ha- have the people in the industry that you've talked to who are still in the industry not not let go? Are they optimistic? Yeah, I think I mean they see it as a it's an ebb and flow, and like I said, they see it as this is still a successful year, maybe just not as successful as like the past two years, so to speak. So they're they're still optimistic. So I think it's going to be for them also kind of seeing where some of this stuff, where some of this demand goes. 
Indiana Public Broadcasting, Samantha Horton. Thank you for your reporting. Thanks for having me. Up next, we'll hear from someone on the ground in Elkhart selling RVs, sales manager Scott Moody from Total Value RV, and a live chat with an economist from IU's Kelly School of Business. Kyle Anderson has studied the industry and has some insight to share with us. What questions do you have for him? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at All In Indiana. I'm Matt Pelser. Back in two minutes. This is All In. This is All In. I'm Matt Pelser. We're talking about Indiana's very strong presence in the RV industry and how its performance can inform the broader economy. We want to hear from you, especially if you work in the industry. Are you concerned about a recession? Or has the sales boom since the Great Recession made you more optimistic? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at All In Indiana, and we'll share your comments with IU Kelly School of Business economist Kyle Anderson later on in this segment. Right now, we're on the line with Scott Moody, sales manager at Total Value RV in Elkhart. Scott, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You're known around Total Value RV as the RV Whisperer. Hey, how, yes, sir. <laughs> how did how did you come to be known by that name? Uh, I just started doing the walk. We do walk around videos for folks on all the new products that we have, and uh, just uh, the Dog Whisperer was popular at that time. So they said I should be the RV Whisperer. <laughs> well, I think that's important when you're selling that kind of a product to be able to walk around and walk through it because people don't really become experts on RVs. It's like, ah, oh, I think I might get an RV or a travel trailer. You don't really familiarize yourself with it as much, and I think that that would help. Oh, it does. The customers really enjoy it. I mean, it's about a 20-minute video, and we just take them all around the outside and around the inside and show them how everything works. And it really helps the people. That way they kind of get an idea of what they've looked at on paper when they can actually see it almost in person. So Elkhart proclaims itself to be the RV capital of the world. The RV Industry Association says that more than 80% of RVs sold in the U.S. are produced in Indiana, many of them there in Elkhart County. And total wholesale shipments of RVs were down this year across the industry, which has some economists asking questions about the U.S. economy at large. Of course, the RV industry seems to be a bellwether for economic recession. Did total value experience any fluctuation in sales this year? Um, I mean, it, they're, they're down just a little bit, but the thing that, that I keep telling people and trying to remind them of is we've had record years for the last six years, and you can't continue to have record years. We're still having a very good year. It's just not like what it has been. Have you noticed any other trends in sales lately, though? Have particular types of RVs been selling better than others? For us, we're largely a motorhome dealer here. So for us, it seems as though what has been sown here, at least recently, has been the bigger diesels. The big Class um, A's? The big Class A diesels, the motorhomes um, that will have the tag axles on them as well seem to be doing real well as here's of late for us. And those are those are not cheap. I mean, why do you think well, that those are doing better than, say, a Class B or a Class C? You know, it's hard telling. It just it seems like that market itself never really gets affected as to what the actual economy is doing as to where you'll see more of it on, on more of the lower end as the trailers or things of that nature is where you would really feel it. So as long as you've been in the business and that's, that's a while, has the RV industry always been considered an economic bellwether or is that something that? No, I'll tell you what, I've been in it almost 30 years now and you can always, we always seem to be the first in of the bad times. And then we're also the first out of the bad times. It seems like. 
like before the last one in 08 and 09, I mean, we were feeling a slowdown here before probably six to eight months before the rest of the country did. But then when it started to recover, we probably felt it six to eight months before everybody else did as well. I understand that during the Great Recession, even national politicians, uh, Obama included, kept an eye on Elkhart as an economic indicator. Uh, I don't know. What's it like when someone like the president visits Elkhart? Um, I mean, it's always good to have someone here to, to put an eye on it. Uh, at that time, we were called the white hot center of the Great Recession. It's nice to have people come by and see what's happening. But I don't know that it actually did anything because, I, you know, it just had to it just had time had to take itself out of it. You have a YouTube channel where you provide tours. And uh, one of the features often mentioned is the status of American made. The fact that uh, right. that, that the vehicles are American made. How important is that feature in your customers? Do they do they ask for that? Um, I don't know that they really ask for it, but I guess, you know, just for the fact that it's it's well known that everything is built here in Elkhart, Indiana. So it's something that we like to tout and, and all the companies do because, you know, everything here is built by Americans for Americans. You sell RVs. You don't make them, but you're just down the road from people that do. Right. How, how much has the trade war factored into pricing and business? Um, it's increased. I mean, we've had price increases here. It's probably, it's gone up, I would say on average, if you take it from all of it around probably 10 to 12% has been the price increase. How does the RV industry look in the coming year? Are you optimistic or are you cautious? Um, I think we're, I'm, I'm optimistic and I think everybody has the industry. What, what happened here is the industry itself up here, we overbuilt. Um, for the record years and then the dealers just bought too much and a lot of stuff was sitting on the dealers lots and they were loaded as to where they were all expecting it took such a long period of time to get anything when the times were real good that everybody ordered up and just over ordered and I believe it's starting to correct itself out and the nice thing you'll see is we're getting more into you're seeing the RV industry being mentioned more in the entertainment industry as well too but in movies tv shows and that helps just make awareness as well, too. If someone is in the market for an RV, uh, I, obviously, I think what you would say is every it's always a good time to buy an RV. But as we sort of creep into what looks like might be another recession, would you say that that will mean better deals for customers and it's a good time to buy? It's a, I can tell you right now, the, the market itself, it's a good time to buy right now just for the fact of the dealers being overloaded and they're trying to get their inventory down. Scott Moody, sales manager at Total Value RV and Elkhart. Thank you so much for your time and good luck. Hey, thank you, sir. Have a good day. And we're joined now by Kelly School of Business economist Kyle Anderson. Kyle, thanks for coming on All In. Thanks for having me on. From an economist perspective, what can the RV industry teach us about the state of the broader economy? So Sam kind of talked about it earlier. One of the things that we think about with the RV industry is that it is a large market and you have um, consumer. It's kind of a luxury good. So consumers are very sensitive to price. It's a luxury good in that it's a big investment and yet it cuts across a, a wide demographic in terms of income, right? It's not necessarily like yachts or, or big McMansions or something like that. These are folks who are sensitive to income changes so they're going to pull back when they're feeling a little bit nervous about the economy. 
But as we just heard, uh, some of the bigger ones, sales kind of never really uh, change or shift that much for some of the big class A's and the buses and things like that. And that could be a lot more of the high income folks, right, who are a little bit less sensitive to shifts in the economy. So maybe it's more that mid-level that that really kind of drives the change and is an indicator of kind of how middle America is feeling about the economy. Aside from the Great Recession, is there a history of successful predictions? Is the is the RV industry a reliable indicator for the economy? It's fairly reliable, yeah. If you go back to, obviously, the Great Recession, but the thing to note about that is the decline was in 2007, whereas the recession didn't really start until mid-2008. Same thing, back in 2000, you had a drop-off in sales before the 2001 recession, going back to even the 80s and 90s. And there was one time it was, quote-unquote, wrong. In 1995, sales dipped. Obviously, there was no recession then. The economy was pretty good. So so it's not always perfect, but it's been a pretty good indicator. It sounds like it it really hits way before uh, before the bigger recession comes. It's sort of a, It's sort of a signal. And that's what makes it interesting to economists, right? Like uh, there are a lot of goods that will go down when the economy slows down, but RVs seem to be a leading indicator and that's why we really keep an eye on it. What are some other canaries in the coal mine aside from the RV industry? So we look a lot at things like business investment. So what investments are companies making? Are, Are they building new plants, new facilities, right? They're looking forward and seeing whether these investments are going to pay off. But again, those are kind of one-off investments, so there aren't a lot of consumer products that really fit that category. We've heard a lot about the inverted yield curve, uh, which sounds like a very economic term. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about what an inverted yield curve is and why it generates so much talk? So the yield curve is the interest rate, and it compares it to the short-term interest rate to the long-term interest rate. And generally, the long-term interest rate is higher. And the reason for that is I'm gonna have, if I'm going to have my money tied up for a long time, I want a higher return on that. When it's inverted, it's opposite of that. So the long-term interest rate is shorter. And basically what happens is the market is forecasting a slowdown in the economy, a, a reduction in interest rates, and basically that it's a telling sign of bad things to come. On another note of economic movement, in July, the Federal Reserve cut interest rates for the first time in more than a decade. Can can you translate for us what does a cut in interest rates signal about the economy? So it signals that the Fed is nervous about the direction it's going. So the reason they cut is to spur investment, to get people to quit saving and start spending more, and most importantly, to get businesses to go out and borrow money Right at lower interest rates, they're more likely to borrow and make investments, and that's what they want. Do you do you think we're more? Uh, do you think we're likely to maybe see more interest rate cuts, or is it too soon to tell right now? Uh, I would say that we were leaning towards more interest rate cuts. It, it's a little early to tell, um, but it's it's probably more likely than an interest rate increase at this time. We heard from uh, Alex on Twitter. He writes, with interest rates already so low, what tools remain to stimulate the economy during a prolonged recession? Uh, Not a lot. And that's one of the concerns. It's one of the reasons why the Fed was raising rates to begin with before they kind of backed off of it. Basically, there are a few different ways in which you can stimulate the economy out of a recession. You can lower interest rates. You can have the government spend more money, which – 
our government's actually spending quite a bit more now than they're bringing in as it is. Our interest rates are already low. So we really don't have much left in the tank if there is a recession to kind of stimulate our way out of it. This is kind of an interesting aside here. Uh, Amanda on Facebook writes, I have a friend who's gone full time using her RV as her permanent residence. Um, she she added uh, Amanda on a Facebook group of RV full-timers, and so she's seen a lot of people talking about living on the road. If this phenomenon grows, it seems like RVs maybe won't qualify as luxury goods anymore. And so what are your thoughts on the effects of an RV-bound population in the context of the larger economy? How will that change things, I wonder? It would certainly be interesting to, to see that phenomenon go on and build and and. We've seen people shifting to things like tiny houses and and these alternative lifestyles. And I think you'll see some of this as our population ages and thinks about retirement in a different way. I'm kind of not surprised. Has a dip in the economy been anticipated in these last few years? We've been looking for it, but the data really haven't shown much up to this point. We've had really steady growth really going back to 2010, 2011. So – it, it's been good. It's been steady. We're always, you know, economists are always out there looking for that recession saying, you know, what what's going to happen? There's a, a famous saying that economists have predicted nine of the last four recessions, right? We're always out there making <laughs> forecasts, even when they don't come true. But really, this is the, the first real indications that, that we've seen some headwinds coming. I mean, is there a statistical or a mathematical rule out there where you might look at the economy and say, we're due, we're due, like we're due every num- so number of years? Not really. So one thing we like to say is that uh, growth doesn't die of old age, right? We're in an expansion. There's no reason that the expansion has to stop. If you go back to the Great Recession, there was a big housing overinvestment, and that led to a crash. In 2001, it was the dot-com stock bubble bursting that led to it. Right now, we don't see any fundamental misalignment in the economy that should lead to a recession. What kinds of questions are you hearing from students, a, a demographic that almost exclusively has the Great Recession as their frame of reference when thinking about what a recession looks like? Yeah, I, I get that a lot. And one thing I like to tell our students and and even you know non-students, even people my age, we tend to forget that recessions used to happen more often and not be that severe. They would last you know maybe a year, maybe six months. And then you'd be out of it and and you'd recover. And, you know, it's not great. Unemployment goes up a little bit in a recession, but it's not as severe things. It seems like our history is a little bit jaded because the last two recessions we've had have been much more severe than normal. What did we learn from the Great Recession that can be applied to help us navigate future slowdowns? I think the Federal Reserve and the government actually handled the Great Recession quite well. The Fed was very aggressive. I know that things like the auto bailouts and some of the bank bailouts that happened were unpopular, but I think things would have been a lot worse had it not happened. So having the Fed and even in some cases Congress take aggressive action in the face of a recession can be very helpful, especially if it's a a severe one. How does the trade war factor into this discussion? So the trade war is probably the biggest single factor that's kind of leading us into these talks of recession. So there's just so much disruption that can happen and so much uncertainty coming out of Washington 
that businesses don't want to make investments that they might otherwise be inclined to make. And that's really what's going to drag on the economy. And so we've sort of waged this trade war. And what is the trade war trying to remedy or achieve? So I, I think it's it, it's kind of hard to say. I think most people who support it would say it's an effort to bring back certain kinds of jobs back to the United States. Realistically, I, I think that a lot of those jobs are already gone and, and not likely to come back. Things like – and we don't manufacture a lot of clothing in the United States. We purchase that from overseas. We're probably OK with that as an economy. But you know, we seem to have a policy that's based on, on moving us backwards. Which sectors of the economy then have been or or will be particularly affected by these ongoing trade wars? And we and they, we have yet to see the worst of it. Yeah, I mean, really, it's going to hit everything, right? Because if it hits consumer spending, it that's going to imp- ripple through the economy. No matter what goods or services you're in, you're going to have some negative impacts that go with that. One of the big areas we're seeing here in Indiana, obviously, Indiana manufactures a lot. We export a lot. So that's going to be hit if there are ongoing trade wars, but also agriculture. Uh, our farmers are being hurt. You know, there, there's a, a lot of movement to try to help them out, but farmers are being hurt by China retaliating against our tariffs. How, in the last thirty seconds or so that we have, how do we? How does one prep for a recession? So it. One thing to keep in mind is you probably don't need to do too much, right? Make sure that, you know, if you're in a stable job, you know, don't quit your job and, and go off looking for another one. Try to make sure you've got another job lined up if you're looking to make a transition because you don't really want to be caught out of work as the economy slows down. Think about your investments and your savings and, and make sure you're as secure as you can be. Great insight. Economist Kyle Anderson from the Kelly School of Business, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Up next, we'll leave the RV world for a talk with Hoosier writer Ashley C. Ford. Two years ago, she was named among Forbes magazine's 30 Under 30 in media, and she's here to share about her life and how it's informed her career. I'm Matt Pelser. That is in two minutes. This is All In. All in. I'm Matt Pelser. In 2017, our next guest was named by Forbes magazine as one of their 30 under 30 in media. She's a writer, speaker, educator, fellow podcaster. She's been published in The Guardian, Elle, BuzzFeed, and Slate, just to name a few. She, of course, is a fellow Hoosier, and she joins us now to talk about her latest projects. Ashley C. Ford, welcome to All In. Thank you for having me. If you had to pick a through line, what is it that you would say you are most drawn to write and speak about? I think, and it's still pretty broad, so you have to allow me that. But I, I think um, humans. <laughs> <laughs> okay, human stories. I, yes, I'm. I'm very fascinated by people and the way we interact with the things we make and the things we're given and the things we see and all of that and 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 sort of not really i guess i'm not really as concerned in the point of life as i am what does it feel like to do life what does it feel like for all of us 
to be living under our own unique circumstances and reacting to the world around us and then reacting to the world's reactions to us. It's, it's fascinating to me. Like, I don't understand how it could be boring. So I just keep going deeper and deeper down that rabbit hole. A cursory glance of your bio says that you describe home as Brooklyn by way of Indiana. You currently live in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. but why is that shout out to Indiana important to you? Um, because first of all, I'm 32. I didn't move to Brooklyn until I was 27. <laughs> I spent the first 27 years of my life with Indiana as my primary residency um, in a radius of about four hours, to be perfectly honest. You know, (laughs) that was my world for so long. And so much of what makes me and so much of uh, the things that people tend to appreciate about my writing or about the way I see the world, I think comes directly from being born and living in that place. And I also know that for many reasons, people tend to give a little more clout to a writer from someplace like New York than a writer who hails from a place like Fort Wayne, Indiana. But it's important to me that people know where I come from and that they're not confused about the potential of those places and the kind of artists and contributors to society who can really be overlooked because of geography. So you mentioned Fort Wayne. Uh, That's where you grew up. Mm -hmm. What what was your childhood like in Fort Wayne? You know, it's it's so hard to say sometimes because part of me thinks it was wonderful. And then the other part of me is like, it was absolutely terrible. Um, But it's like all childhoods, right? Somewhere in between. Indiana, especially Fort Wayne, has a ridiculous cost of living to the point that my single mother of four children, me being the oldest, was able to own and maintain a home my almost my entire childhood. So I was never transient. I never, you know, lived in one apartment this year, another apartment that year, getting pushed out of, you know, my neighborhood into a different place. Like those sorts of things didn't happen to me. Um, And in that way, I had a real sense of stability. My mother is one of five girls. And for most of my childhood, all five girls lived in the same neighborhood, you know? So I was surrounded by cousins and family members and people who cared about and loved me, you know, in whatever way they knew how, but in a very present way. And that was lovely. On the other hand, I grew up in a family where, you know, especially like a lot of families, kids were expected to sort of be silent and I I guess not have their own feelings (laughs) or their own humanity. And uh, given the circumstances of my childhood with my father being incarcerated and my mom being a, a single parent of four kids and all of those things coming together, I really needed a place for my feelings and a place to talk about what was going on with me and have it matter to someone. And for most of my childhood, I didn't feel like I had that from the people you would assume it would come from. 
Uh, and you were just recently a guest at the Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePauw. Your speech was entitled, What Happens to Children When Their Parents Are Incarcerated? You just mentioned that. How did that experience shape your life? I mean, it's for a long time in my mind was the shape of my life. It was the frame that my life fit in. It, it was part of my, like myself, that I was the child of an incarcerated person. I thought it really meant something about who I was, like the kind of person I was, because it was very clear to me that it was something I was supposed to be ashamed of. And that was really hard for me to reckon with as a person becoming a person, uh, trying to figure out how someone else could do something, but it could mean something about me. And also, I'm not allowed to talk about that. So I, I kind of wanted to give, you know, the audience this sense of reverberation because we think about incarceration, which is a really hot topic in the country right now, especially mass incarceration. We think about it, you know, as a doofal punishment, you know, like you did something wrong, you are incarcerated. Those are the rules. That's what happens. And it's not that that's not understandable. It's just, would we think it was as reasonable um, if we thought about how the how incarceration doesn't just affect the person who's incarcerated. And that's not to say that that person should, you know, be given something extra because of doing something wrong. Like, absolutely not. But I want to talk about this through the lens of my life because I didn't do anything wrong. I was, my father went to prison when I was four months old, you know, I did nothing wrong. And him going to prison affected my life in a myriad of ways forever. You've lived this, obviously. Who are the stakeholders that we forget to talk about when we discuss mass incarceration? We forget to talk about the families and the communities <laughs> that are left in the wake of mass incarceration to try to fill roles that in, you know, a more to be perfectly honest, a more civilized way, um, we would have thought of a way to have those roles filled because it, it's, it's a punishment for not just the incarcerated person, but their family. My mom found out she was pregnant uh, just, I mean, a week after my dad went to jail. She found out she was pregnant with my brother and that very quickly she had gone from being a young wife and mother to a single parent of two children under two. Wow. I mean, I'm a I'm a parent, you know? I'm a parent of two children under two. One is one is two and one is a, a practically a newborn. I can't imagine uh, not having help. <laughs> uh, my goodness. And at 22 years old. Yeah. At 22 years old. Yeah. OK. Like, and, I, and I think about that, and it's not that, you know, I, I think, like, by no means should my father have been left to roam the streets and commit violence. Like, by no means is that the answer. You know what I mean? Like, there, there should have been some intervention. There should, there has to be. There absolutely has to be in order to keep people safe. But what that looks like was just removing my father from the situation and 
offering nothing to fill that hole, not a camp, not counseling, (laughs) not uh, the opportunity to speak to my father. You know, speaking on the phone when somebody is incarcerated costs money. So you take half of the potential income out of a home with no way to recoup it in, in any, any way. You can't do it. And then on top of that, you have to spend money to communicate with the person who's incarcerated. What does that do to a family? What does that do to a parent who's locked up who thinks, you know, it's better for my family if I don't call? It's better for my family if they don't have to think about communicating with me and what that might cost and not just resources, but also the emotional repercussions of having a relationship with an incarcerated parent and having to really deal in real life with the fact that you love and are loved by someone who has done something reprehensible. What does that mean? Like, and that's a conversation that we should be having. We should be talking about the complexity of humanity and human emotions and what people are capable of versus what people do. Um, We should be talking about that from a very young age. And instead, we pretend that conversations about complexity will scare children (laughs) and that it will harm them in some way. And I believe that if we have those conversations about that complexity a little bit earlier, what we're actually giving kids are the tools to understand that when they mess up, when they inevitably do something wrong because they are humans, it does not mean that that moment is who they are. That is not who they become in that moment. Imagine how much less scared a kid would be to come to a parent and say, look, I messed up if they didn't think that that thing would define them for the rest of their lives. Well, let's talk about talking and communication. You wrote an essay in 2017. My father spent 30 years in prison. Now he's out. And in that essay, you asked the question, how do you catch someone up on your entire life? You talked about the fact that you didn't really get to talk to him on the phone that much. What was your conclusion there? Mm -hmm. It's hard. (laughs) I don't know how else to say it. It's one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my entire life because you have to understand when my father got out of prison, even though he had been sending me these letters my entire life, by the time he got out, I was 30. (laughs) And we, our only perceptions of each other really were made up. It's like my perception of my father was really born of these letters and the little bits and pieces of information I could get from family members over years. So that's my dad in my mind, you know, like it's two visits and a lifetime of speculation. (laughs) That's my dad. And for him, who I am is, you know, just his almost nothing because I barely communicated with him over the years about who I am and what's going on with me and what's going on in my mind and what I enjoy and what I like and what I do. I barely communicated about it. So we're strangers. We are connected strangers trying to build something that is even close to what we've both built up separately in our minds. And it's, it's a clash. It comes together and it is a rough clash 
And the only thing that gets you through it is not giving up. Let's bring it back to your Indiana roots. You're a Ball State alum, as am I, chirp, chirp. Uh, yes, and you, and you credit Ball State as a place that helped you grow professionally, but also in the exploration of your identity. What role yes. did Ball State play in, in that understanding and exploration? Well, you know, <laughs> I always tell people that because I went to um, up until college, I had gone through a school system that was primarily black, that I went to Ball State for a little diversity uh because it was primarily white and i was like oh i wonder what that's like <laughs> and, that's, <laughs> and that's like a, that's one of the reasons why i went there uh which is you know true and not true like it but one of the things that i was involved with almost immediately was the group spectrum um because i knew at that point that I was attracted to women as well as men and um, everything in between, including non-binary folks. And I didn't really know what that meant for me because I was in a relationship with a cis uh, man at the time. And I thought he was wonderful and I was very happy with him. But I also knew that I had these other attractions and it was something I wanted to talk about. And I had not had a space to do that in uh, in a really formal way <laughs> until I got to college and was part of an organization uh, called Spectrum. And I wasn't even like a full member of Spectrum. Like I couldn't make every meeting because I was heavily involved with student voluntary services and that took up so much of my time and I loved it. Like I absolutely loved it. We were part-time AmeriCorps and it was amazing. But I always considered myself a supporter and or like a like a side member of Spectrum um, because I really, really just loved and appreciated the opportunity to talk about this part of myself that up until that point had been not just hidden, but kind of denied. You. You got to deliver the fall commencement speech last year. You were, you, you were also part of that graduating class, right? What was that like? I was. And what's the story that there? Amazing. That was amazing. Okay. The story essentially is that I ended up having to leave Ball State after several years. I mean, I worked two jobs. The like, I, Every semester I had two jobs. And I worked through the summer. And I always had a full load. And, but I kept changing my major. Like I, and I, I, this is my fault. So I did, I kept changing my major because I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I was just felt like I was failing at figuring that out. And I finally found something that worked. But by the time I got to the end of it, I was just burnt out. And on top of that, I literally didn't have the money to take my final class to finish my degree. But you're you're also in the process of writing your debut memoir, some somebody's daughter. What yes. has what's that been like, and when can we expect to see that out? That has been fantastic. I have an amazing editor named Bryn Clark. Um, it's coming out through Flatiron Books and the imprint and Oprah Book, um, which is Oprah Winfrey's imprint, and it has been a really great creative process i've never felt so supported um in a myriad of ways in the in the creation of a book but at this point we don't have an exact date 
but I will say I can like wink, wink a little to look out for 2021 in the first half of 2020. Ashley C. Ford, thanks for coming on All In and uh, best of luck. Thank you so much for having me. Today's show was produced by Maggie Galon. You can catch up on All In with our podcast, which is on Stitcher and Apple Podcasts. Of course, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at All In Indiana. And join us next time for a show on the controversial new requirement that all Indiana teachers incorporate career development curriculum into the classroom. How is that defined? And what do people think? What does it mean for our schools? That's Thursday at this time. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Matt Pelser. This is All In. All In.